Um, but um, I'm delighted to welcome you all today to hear our final work in progress talk of uh, winter term. Uh, I, I think everybody knows who Priscilla Yeaman is, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon, also a faculty affiliate in the Center for the Study of Women in Society, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. Professor Yeaman's research interests include American politics, politics of inequality, social policy, marriage and family politics, American political development and institutions, race, gender, and sexuality studies, and feminist theory, and political culture and political identity. Her monograph, uh, Marriage, a Political Institution, was published in 2012 by University of Pennsylvania Press. And she regularly publishes articles in a variety of scholarly journals, including Theory and Society, New Political Science, Polity, and Politics Groups and Identities. As a 2022-23 OHC Faculty Research Fellow, Priscilla Yeaman has been working on her project, and I'll make sure I've got the historicizing social egg freezing eugenics feminism <laughs> and the commodification of motherhood race. Please. Oh. Oh. Race is not really in belonging in there. Okay. Sorry. Of motherhood. motherhood. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ah, Sorry, usually I've got it wrong here. Yeah. Um, please join me in welcoming <laughs> Priscilla Yeaman. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. I chose the very last slot, you know, at the beginning of the term. I'm like, oh my God, when am I going to present this? So thank you for coming on the last week of classes and beautiful day and all that. Um, so I appreciate all of you coming. And thank you again to the Oregon Humanities Center for the research time. It's been really invaluable. OK, so uh, before I get into the details of my talk, I want to explain that this is part of a larger book project that looks at the changing relationship of the market, racial formation, and the family in the United States. Partly I track how the long shadow of eugenics falls on contemporary conceptualizations of family. Partly I track the shifting role of women and labor in the American economy, particularly with the emergence of neoliberalism since the 1980s, and with that, the changing role of family in society. Partly I track the changes in reproductive politics and the ways in which race, class, and market imperatives have shaped its development over time. What I'm about to present, you will see, is a work in progress, so I appreciate any comments and questions, suggestions you might have. So today I'm talking about the part of the project um, that concerns assisted reproductive technologies, and in particular what's called social egg freezing, that is freezing eggs for non-medical purposes. Um, and I'm going to talk about the complicated dynamic between race, labor, the market, in the practice and implementation of social egg freezing. Egg freezing involves a multiple-step process of ovarian stimulation, egg retrieval, and freezing, so a woman can attempt pregnancy at a later date through in vitro fertilization. Originally, egg freezing was solely used as a treatment for infertility, but in 2012, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine announced the treatment would now be made available more widely. It quickly developed into a thriving industry and has now become a more common practice in the United States. Since 2012, the number of women who have frozen their eggs has increased 72% from over 7,000 in 2016 to over 12,000 in 2020. And since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the industry has developed even faster. 
Indeed, the pandemic intensified that ticking biological clock, that anxious sense of time slipping away that marks the experience, particularly of middle and middle to, um, middle to upper class women caught between career demands and the desire expectation to start a family. Fertility clinics across the country have reported a sharp increase in egg freezing since quarantine in March 2020. As one therapist told Time Magazine in January 2021, everybody had to take a hard stop in their lives. I think what happened is that it gave people the time and space to kind of reassess their priorities and the directions that they're taking in their life. Egg freezing is advertised by the industry as a way to resolve this tension between career and family. There are different but related framings that the industry offers. Sometimes it's described as preserving fertility or an insurance policy. These depictions glides over the fact that it is an expensive, physically taxing process and one that has unpredictable chances of success. In this advertisement, you can see the kind of woman that they are targeting and how it is also pitched as empowering. I also want to draw your attention to how they refer to her as a superhero, her superpower being able to defy her biological clock. Now, while social egg freezing is often depicted as a technology that empowers women, there are, in fact, many questions about whether, how, and for whom it is empowering, and if an insurance policy for what exactly. Political debates over assisted reproductive technologies are often moral arguments over what constitutes human life, as is the case with reproductive politics and like abortion. However, I am not examining bioethical dimensions of egg freezing, nor choices that individual women make around donating and freezing their eggs. Rather, I am looking at the intersectional and institutional configurations that construct egg freezing, such as market forces, existing race, gender, and class inequalities, and the broader political, social, and cultural dynamics of family and reproduction as they are obscured by the women's empowerment narrative. So in many ways, my question is not how social egg freezing empowers women, but why it hasn't and following that to consider how the transformative potential of reproductive technologies is now limited, especially as it relates to women of color and disabled people, and how that might change. So the overall themes that I'm working with are race, market, and family. Those are the lenses that I'm looking at, social and freezing, and how they interact. And through those lenses, I argue that as an industry, social egg freezing naturalizes racial hierarchies and, like other markets, does so under the guise of colorblindness, excludes and limits access on the basis of race and class, defines women's reproductive concerns as workplace issues, tying women and their conceptions of motherhood to the market and leaving fathers out entirely, perpetuates the notion that, a marketized, that marketized actions will solve social issues through the family. So before going on, I want to give a little bit more detail about the business of assisted reproductive technologies. Um, ART takes place largely in private sector clinics in the United States and is a big money maker in the U.S. biotech industry. The world's first fertility company, Health, public public in 2013 at a half billion dollars. 
Increasing is the fastest growing sector of the U.S. fertility market, which is projected to reach over $15 billion this year, more than double what it was in 2017. In terms of regulation, ART falls under the FDA, the agency's oversight is limited. The only, the only federal, federal law that specifically regulates ART is the U.S. Fertility, US Fertility Clinic Success Rate and Certification Act of 1992. This dictates that fertility clinics have to report their pregnancy success rates to the CDC. Now, while clinics seem to be lying, there's no legal consequence for failing to report. In practice, in practice, the U.S. is characterized by a significant lack of regulation compared to other parts of the world, world and is often called the Wild West fertility industry. Unlike, unlike most Europe, of Europe, in the U.S., the U.S. physicians and researchers are really free to formulate their own policies about procedures and answers to ethical questions. While egg freezing market marketed as an easy solution to keeping demands on work on one hand, one hand and biological morality on the other, egg freezing isn't, isn't easy. To begin to with, begin with it's expensive. Egg freezing retrieval costs around, around more than $1,000. The process, process is physically and emotionally demanding. It involves, it involves rejections, hesitations, and regular doctor visits. It can be very painful and it comes with some health risks. Finally, finally, the success, success rate of lives where frozen eggs and eggs are not clear. But we do, we know, do know that it's not a guarantee, guarantee and a real, real insurance, insurance policy. So who so is, is, is using it? How? how? Well, here are two common, common forms of social egg freezing, and drawing out the fact that the age, race, and status. There are older, older women, 30s, 30s, and 40s, freezing their eggs later later due to career or financial partnering reasons. And the other, the younger women in their twenties, paid to donate, to donate, Starkly explains, this was multi-billion dollar apparatus, 
devoted to technologically facilitating affluent couples' appropriated decisions, stands in glaring contrast to the high rate of deaths among black people. So now I want to return to my lenses of race and race family, and we're going to focus on race and race family here in the energy market next. Um, these disparities and exclusions are not just an outcome, but a symptom of how this market-driven reproductive cycle reinscribes racial privilege and racial inequalities through a certain notion of family. A cycle that actively excludes women of color as it actively encourages white women through commodification. Any studies that reduction must entail an understanding and the constant renewal of racialization, racial privilege, and racial discrimination. As Dorothy Roberts and Donna M. Davis explain, framing the issue as only white women as having access and women of color as only being excluded assumes women of color and race play no part except by exclusion. So with that in mind, I turn to reproductive justice and notions of stratified reproduction. Um, that draw attention to the fact that individual choice or decisions around reproduction are not just choices, but questions of power and inequality, and that certain women's reproduction is privileged and others are denied or denigrated. So I suggest that the cycle that I'm talking about uh, explicates a racial construction of family. In other words, the cycle perpetuates whiteness pointing to the way the social exclusion industry supports the, racial, the naturalization of racial hierarchies across families under a pretext of being colorblind. Colorblind racism and colorblindness is a dominant US racial ideology which upholds racial inequalities by discounting the role of race in shaping social conditions rather than seeing racism as embedded in social structures and institutions like family and the market. Colorblind racism perpetuates structural racial inequalities in reproduction and social egg freezing by denying or admitting attention to the historical and contemporary processes through which unequal resources of value are allocated to socially constructed racial groups. So to get at the historical processes and the relationship between race and family, I turn to the ideology of eugenics. Since the 1980s, bioethicists have raised concerns about eugenics in regard to ART, particularly to prenatal <coughs> genetic testing. However, I want to argue that eugenics and social egg freezing is present here in a different way one that ties the notion of a so-called fit family to whiteness and intelligence as it was in the first third of the 20th century and as it is now in the contemporary construction of family within economic demands of neoliberalism. Social egg freezing is not just an in about individual families but also about how families are defined by race. So to fill this out a bit, I'm going to talk about the progressive era notions of eugenics to give you an idea of what I mean. There's a lot to unpack with regard to eugenics, but I will focus on this one aspect, and that is how family is shaped by eugenic ideology. The pseudoscience of eugenics, which gained popularity in the late 19th century, was based on a belief that it was possible to improve the human race by selective breeding. In practice, through sterilization and birth control, eugenic laws and policies attempted to manage the reproduction of the, quote, feeble-minded 
and the unfit, terms often used to describe working class immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, black people and poor white people, in order to address social problems like poverty and disease believed to be biologically based. And so here also just, there's a, another cycle here. <laughs> it's pretty sealed, right? This guy's, uh, where he's headed is uh, not, not good places, but. Um, <laughs> And then here's an example of a flyer from a Kansas State Fair. This was from a health exhibit created to show visitors who should be considered fit for reproduction and who should not. And, you know, just draw your attention to, you can improve your education, even your environment, but what you really are was settled when your parents were born. Um, so by exploring the ways in which eugenics not only shaped racialized notions of feeble-minded individuals, but also racialized notions of feeble-minded families. Less commonly equated with eugenics is this dominant discourse of family, of legitimate kinship in which gender, class, and race inequalities are normalized. Where the idea of legitimate kinship was not a legal question, but a biological one. In other words, the project of eugenics was aimed at the reproduction of a legitimate fit family while also maintaining the unequal social and economic relations that underpinned it. So uh, here are two famous eugenic studies that I'll just briefly talk about. Um, the first is the Jukes, uh, a study in crime, pauperism, disease, and heredity. This was a eugenic study um, of a degenerate family which was done in 1875, sociologist Richard Dugdale studied the inmates of a New York state prison and found that the inmates, a lot of them, were blood relatives of the Juke family, the Juke family line, um, and the Jukes were considered to be a socially degenerate lineage and therefore explains how and why they are perpetuating crime and why they're in jail. Dugdale also determined that the degenerate Jukes line had already cost the state over $1 million over a period of 75 years. So this is another important theme, the cost of the feeble-minded on society. And the other example is the Kalakak family. Uh, this is a, a study in the heredity of feeble-mindedness. This was published in 1912 by Henry Goddard. He was an educator and a psychologist. Goddard studied the families that were descended from one single army soldier. The soldier had children with two different women. One was a Quaker woman with whom he married and he had children and that created the normal line. Um, these women, uh, the, ki the kids were considered intelligent and fit. The other he produced with a feeble-minded barmaid um, which resulted in, her, in the de degenerate line. And so you can see the scientific display here <laughs> um, <laughs> of the two different lines. Um, just picking up on the theme of the cost of feeble-mindedness, here's an example. Also, this was an exhibit in the Kansas Fair again in 1929. In this exhibit, a red light would flash every 15 seconds to show how often a feeble-minded baby was born. Um, and so, I, you know, sort of like framing this cost as a constant kind of stressful moment of how much money is being going to have to be spent on taking care of feeble-minded individuals. Um, the other side is, so, you know, there's the examples of the feeble-minded, but there was also an important part, which is, you know, 
showcasing, you know, the fit families. Um, and so these fitter family contests um, demonstrate this also the centrality of family and eugenics. These were popular forms of eugenic education and propaganda. These contests were done to exemplify the primacy of whiteness. They were held at state fairs, mostly in the Midwest, and judged the purity of the white lineages through genealogical mappings and put their whiteness on display for reward. The first was held in Topeka, Kansas in 1920. These contests were popular. There were you know, many popular attractions and often given front page coverage in local newspapers. Prizes were also awarded to the best baby and young couples starting eugenic marriages. And then, you know, here's an example. Here's the newspaper. This is kind of what it looked like at the state fairs, you know, next to the livestock, you know, where they're checking out the, the cows, you know. And uh, there's a, an example of the sheet that they're proving their um, lineage. Um, so as an industry, now back to social egg freezing, um, there are strong echoes of eugenics because it promotes a racially circumscribed form of biological reproduction and the idea of fit families from the eggs of non-white, of white mothers, sorry, either women who freeze their own eggs or purchase eggs of apparently genetically superior college students, which I'll talk about in a moment. So it's not just a fit family, but a family that fits in the narrow confines of a social acceptance and ideologies within racism and patriarchy. So what I'm trying to articulate here in part is a certain kind of social cultural commitment and desire for a family that is undergirded by eugenic ideologies of racial hierarchy and class that is interwoven into the commodification of motherhood since the onset of social egg freezing. In other words, the existence of social egg freezing taps into this aspiration to have a family, which is the basis of a, the success of the industry. Um, and it's not just any family, it's an independent family, right? So it's, it goes back to that money, the cost of feeble-mindedness. Um, so these issues of cost are also an important factor in it, and just sort of working out its relationship. Okay, so now to return um, to my race market family um, lenses, here I'm going to now turn to uh, looking at the market today um, and its relationship to family. Um, and I'm going to talk about how this notion of fit families works under contemporary economic conditions. And for this, I turn to sociologist Melinda Cooper. In her recent work, Cooper shows that the role of family in contemporary American society reflects the twin triumphs of neoliberalism and social conservatism. She helps us understand how neoliberal policies and their effects shape the role of family. These include tax cuts, the abolition of welfare, and other social services. And the effect of this has been the development of a large wealth gap and accelerated inequality. All these changes recenter the family in politics and the economy in important ways. Cooper argues that the ideological shift to neoliberalism since the 1980s has made the traditional family, not the state, responsible for social welfare. This works well with the rise of social conservatism, which privileges the heteropatriarchal bourgeois family as the social and moral anchor of society. In other words, without a welfare state, care work has been privatized and with the expectation that dependency would be handled privately. But the upward redistribution of wealth 
has also meant that many white middle and middle to upper class families need two incomes in order to maintain their lives and women had to join the workforce. So how do you continue to center this notion of a traditional family while also compelling women to work? Well, here we begin to see how social egg freezing is not about personal choices in juggling family and work, but the economic and political context that makes it necessary. These changes create a momentum towards finding individual solutions to problems of care in the home while women work and incentivizes women to delay childbirth as a way to survive an unrelenting market and an absent state, but framed as a superpower or as good motherhood. Social egg freezing offers one way to resolve the work-family problem, but it is a resolution that reinforces neoliberal imperatives in a racialized framework that excludes women of color and families of color. So I just want to return quickly to my diagram um, and the, you know, the ways in which, you know, again, this is sort of a, re a cycle that I'm trying to pull out to get at this dynamic of the relationship between race, market, and family. Um, and how has it been created? Um, and so for that, I turn to the market and some of the tools or, you know, things that have example, or I'm going to give you some examples of the ways in which the market is pushing this cycle. And those are insurance policies, um, clinic ads on college campuses, and Instagram ads. So one way the market is forcing this cycle is through insurance policies that target women who are already in the market uh, or are already in the workforce in their 30s and their 40s. In 2014, Facebook and Apple made headlines by offering to give female employees $20,000 of egg freezing benefits. Mm -hmm. As of 2020, about 42% of large U.S. employers offer coverage of fertility treatments. Since 2020, leading providers of fertility benefits services have doubled their client base. Yet we know the tech industry is a racially segregated sector. Whites account for 62%, Hispanics and Latinos 8%, and African Americans 7%. Um, and this is an example from Morgan Stanley. Um, the finance sector, which is even worse, at 70% white, 9.5% Hispanic, 8.4% Asian American, and 5.7% African American. So this suggests that it is mostly white women who have subsidized delayed childbirth through the corporate sector. Another example, the way the industry is encouraging egg freezing into the cycle is through advertisements on college campuses where I argue is how young women are being kind of brought into um, the neoliberal workforce um, by buying into the market, by selling their eggs, while at the same time, clinics are targeting specific kinds of women. Agencies advertise widely in college newspapers. The higher the average SAT, the more money is offered, which mm. demonstrates a eugenic orientation of searching for the best genes. As egg donation ads appear on college bulletin boards and newspapers and on billboards, it's clear that educational achievement is an important characteristic of potential uh, donors in addition to race. In fact, there is a link between educational achievement and egg donation and the financial vulnerability of many students. Compensation ranges between five, ten, dollars or $50,000 
Egg donation is therefore lucrative for young women who have limited earning power while in school, and it is pitched as a way to make a large amount of money fairly quickly, for example, during spring break. You can <laughs> <laughs> your eggs. Um, again, the very place where fertility clinics are focusing are largely white institutions, the population of Ivy League, schools are majority white, whites make up 50, 50%. Um, and now finally, well not finally actually, two more examples, social media ads. Um, this is sort of a newer area of research for me, but um, marketing campaigns of fertility clinics are aggressively marketing to younger women through Instagram advertisements um, or clinics holding events like Prosecco parties to persuade women to spend thousands freezing their eggs. Here are some examples. Um, this is from a company called Perfect Match. Uh, and you can see they're paying $50,000. Um, so these are ads asking for women to donate, but the pictures I think are interesting because they're really showing who they want and they all want you know, highly educated uh, people. Um, another interesting factor I think I'm also looking at this is that the clinics themselves are more and more being designed as spas or high-end hotels. Um, they, and they're equating egg freezing like, you know, manicures and, you know, hair dyeing touch-ups, um, blowouts, you know, that, you know, because they offer financing. So it's as inexpensive as getting a manicure, some of the ads that I'm seeing. Um, and I think it's interesting. It's not just, you know, the cost. It's a, a lifestyle now that they're trying to push on women that this is just part of their lifestyle and beauty norms, which I think is interesting. So it's sort of like motherhood is marketed as almost like a beauty product or something, you know. Um, I'm just playing around with that, but <laughs> this thing is interesting. Um, and finally, fertility clinics have started to partner with um, social media influencers, offering mm -hmm. discounts for the procedure if they share their experience with, with their thousands of Instagram uh, followers. As one TikTok influencer recently put it, she's going to fuck the biological clock. But as I argue what that actually means, it is to calibrate the biological clock to the needs of the, work, of the marketplace and to racial hierarchies. So broadly, here are my takeaways. Um, social egg freezing is deeply racialized in terms of who is excluded from the practice, who is subsidized by insurance to delay childbirth, who is recruited to sell eggs, and finally, what kind of family is imagined that influences and defines the culture of egg freezing and the reproduction of whiteness. And even though social egg freezing is a privileged racial site, it is not necessarily a liberated site, even for the women involved. Market compulsion, the selling of eggs by young women who need money, and the delaying of childbirth by women who are working determine the practices of social egg freezing for those involved. The neoliberal model of family within which the practice of social egg freezing has developed forces some women into prescribed modes of reproduction and family structure while excluding other women and other forms of family from it altogether. So I want to suggest that you know, ART is an exciting development in our reproductive lives. Um, however, its promise is limited by the structures that surround and shape it. In order to move forward with justice and equality in mind, we need 
and accounting of the multiple and intersecting structural conditions that govern who has access. Denaturalize the idea of choice and empowerment in this form. And as reproductive justice might suggest, challenge the view of social egg freezing as existing only within one dimension of women's autonomy, but how it connects with other structures, such as the economy, marketplace, white supremacy, and class status, in order to open up ways for social egg freezing to challenge, rather than reinforce already existing forms of inequality. <laughs> Thank you so much, Priscilla, for this fascinating talk. I'm going to um, take the privilege of having this be my birthday to ask the first question. So I'm especially interested in the, the, the last uh, gesture that you made about um, seeking a more just, mm. a socially just version of what social egg freezing could be. And you, you mentioned denaturalizing the ideas of choice. Um, could you say a little bit more about what this would look like in your imagining or in the imagining of people who are doing the kind of work you're doing? You know, I, there's not a lot out mm -hmm. there, you yeah. know. It's, it's actually, because um, it is hard to, I think, separate it out from the market and, I mean, these structures that structure our everyday thinking. Um, you know, because one idea would be to, is, you know, economically democratizing it, does that help? Um, you know, so it's hard. It's actually really hard for me to say um, because it does then sometimes lend itself into a moral question, which is or normative questions. You know, which we at this point want to you know hold off on. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm wondering if anybody else has ideas. I haven't really. I can say what we need to change. I don't have such a good answer yet for what to change it. So, could I ask you a follow up? Um, mm -hmm. You're clearly doing this work of denaturalizing all these categories that are involved. Mm -hmm. And you just said there's not a lot of this going on. So are you like a lone wolf doing this work or are there oh, no. other people doing this kind of work? I mean, it seems to me, I mean, especially uh, problematic is that this is being marketed to to people on college campuses, so mm -hmm. I wanted to say, have, are we? Is it happening here? I have yes. seen it here. Yeah. yeah, have you seen it? Yeah. And um, and you know, obviously, you're here, and you know, you're teaching this to people. Um, are there a lot of other people doing this work? So there, there, little parts of it, and in different disciplines, in mm -hmm. different ways. Not a lot in political science, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, because there isn't a lot, actually, if you're looking more in the formal political realm, laws, you know, mm -hmm. like at, at all, really. Or some some states are doing it, but they're it's unclear where they're getting their information from, even because it's all pretty protected. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm not a lone wolf, but it it is still an area where I think because it's all so charged yeah. as well, yeah, you know. Yeah. So people are kind of treading lightly, and there's so many different parts to it that. Um, so I'm starting. You know, there's a little bit out there, but a lot of it more is on the trying to understand what's going on. But a lot of it is empower how it empowers women or not, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the moral questions. You know, or the sci science about when do we start and who is a human, and yeah, you know. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, that was great talk. <laughs> um, I actually was like thinking 
about it kind of reminded me a little bit about the literature on like global care chains mm-hmm. where like when women aren't, aren't doing the market it almost was positioned as like you know um women from developing countries coming and doing like domestic work or caretaking work in the household and it was almost positioned as like a collaboration between like women mm-hmm. and it sort of rendered invisible the absence of men mm-hmm. in care work and the absence of the state right mm-hmm. and here you have something similar um, where you have you know young women sort of seen as like you know supporting uh, women in their mid 30s or 40s right um, and it's sort of seen as like like you know those advertisements were like help well, I mean, there were some that was like, help a gay couple, yes. like, right? Um, but some of it's, a lot of it's like, you know, help seeking altruistic women. And it's sort of seen like a social com- uh, contract between women, but doing so sort of renders invisible men um, mm-hmm. and the state. And I think you did a good job explaining how the state in terms of regulation is absent here, but also thinking about like, why do these young women need money? Well, they're burdened by college debt because they're not a good public education mm-hmm. option, right? And so thinking about sort of, that how the absence of the state creates those conditions mm-hmm. for that need. Mm-hmm. But also like I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how men are positioned or are they are they just totally written out? Because part of the reason why women need to delay um, is because men aren't helping in, in many cases or there's all these studies that say there's just not like high quality men out there. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, listen. Well, you said that. You. Um, but there's research that shows that something like one percent of the men on like dating apps are getting like ninety percent of the likes from women because women are so there's so much more educated qualified women out there compared to men, their male peers. And, and so what that leads to is like a sense a lot of women delaying because they can't find a partner, right? And so, so there's like the absence of like qual- quality men, right? And right. education is sort of a proxy for that. Right. But also like men, like couples, men not being willing to take parental leave or, mm-hmm. so I think like you could really play up sort of like who is written out of this story mm-hmm. and, and sort of how do they get off the hook type thing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. particularly men in the state. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a really great comments. I mean, it is a way in which, um, right, it t- falls into like a normal kind of heteronormative patriarchal family, mm-hmm. right, where it falls on women in order to take care of all the care and dependency. And I, it definitely, it's a great way to, to describe this cycle that I'm trying of this compact really between yeah. women. It's yeah. true. The market is asking, you know, help the you know, help the older women who have waited too the long. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that exactly that men are just it's sort of you know, totally written out, especially as it moves into this like spa environment, right? Or beauty, you know? Um, it's a girl's weekend. Yeah, yeah. It's a girl's weekend. You have no support from your partner. Right, right, partner. right. And it and it's, but really, it's almost not labor at all at that point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, you're laboring around gender norms, mm-hmm. right? But then it really removes it from those kinds of questions entirely. Um, And that is one of the things I wanted to bring in, which is there is labor here, you know, um, not just in doing it, right, and freezing your eggs or whatever, but then, you know, you're doing it really to keep working. There is a lot of research that says that um, women see it mostly as not being able to find partners. Mm -hmm. But again, that is... um, Or waiting to find, you know, Mr. Right. I mean, there are all those fantasies around... What is it they're waiting for exactly? You know, like how's that? What are they hoping for? You know, and that seems to be reinscribed mm-hmm. into the sort of larger system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That was wonderful. Thank you so much. I love it so much. Um, I was really taken with you the way you talked about it. Uh, this is a way of reproducing the centrality of the family as part of kind of like the neoliberal state as well as conservative culture, which is like, you know, the heteropatriarchal family as the center of society. And I'm wondering if there's been any commentary on the part of the right about this practice. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, so I, there, I think in some ways, uh, this, is a, this is an excellent question. Um, so, because it, I think it's a complicated, there hasn't been much because it's complicated, right? It's an example of women wanting to have children, right? <laughs> I mean, that, you know, as opposed to preventing women from not having children, which seems to be around reproductive politics, what conservatives are mostly focusing on. Um, but on the other hand, this sort of, this falls into a bit of this sort of uh, femtech, they call mm -hmm. it, which is, you know, these um, companies that might track your your period and you know that some conservative younger conservative women are all about right they they are interested in empowering themselves in this way um, and maybe that's why this move into beauty sort of taps it's, it's sort of again the sort of more like women you know not challenging you know the family structures and um, you know because the more younger conservative women are not as much you know stay-at-home moms it's kind of shifted a little bit. They're still very conservative in their traditional values, but they also see they need to work, which I think also is part of neoliberalism, right? In order to maintain class status or, you know, you're, everybody's got to work, you know? Um, uh, but that's a, a great thing to, I, so I don't, that's what, it's also interesting about the state laws. I, you know, they're not, they're not sort of conjoined with abortion, anti-abortion laws. They're kind of in a separate area. And I, it also, because of stem cell research, anxieties you know that's also one reason why it's kind of been quieted down it's not a big they're not making it a big political issue yet i think they haven't figured out where they stand i was interested in the oh, way wait, hold on a second. Oh, we, go ahead. lynn had her hand up so. <laughs> sorry yeah thanks for a great talk i really enjoyed it um a, a couple of questions um i'm wondering in terms of tying it to neoliberalism and and um Eugenics also really looking at current demography mm. and immigration policy, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, white anxiety. Yeah. I mean, since really 1986, we you know haven't yes. let too many people in. We're getting rid of asylum. Right. So that you know, in combination with what's happening with white mm -hmm. people yeah. in the U.S. is kind of an interesting yeah. larger um, frame. I I also wondered if it if you if it would be interesting to compare your analysis with adoption, right? Mm -hmm. Different kinds of adoption mm -hmm. over the same time period. Yes. Um, yeah. I, that's, I haven't done that. That's a great. That. Um, that's a great idea. Do you have any more to say about the adoption piece, or? Well, there's well, another. Expert I know there's an expert in the room. <laughs> in the room. I, know, I know. I know. I know. Just you know, how much does? The same thing, sort of permeate different kinds of adoption, and right. you know, adoption through foster care, for example, right, right. Um, versus you know, private international adoptions. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, that really shows probably where some folks who are not white and not rich or middle class right. are going for very different reasons. Right, um, right. Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent because um, I haven't done that, and I think it's a great, great idea. Um, 
in terms of that immigration thing, that's also really good point. And you know, I don't know if you're familiar with race suicide, but it almost feels yeah. sounds like mm -hmm. that, right? Like mm -hmm. in the night, you know, during eugenics period, the fear that white people right. are not reproducing enough because there's this inflow of immigrants are going to take over. You're right. There's sort of a subtle um, idea of anxiety about not having enough white babies. I think it's not so subtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was like Roosevelt's out there saying, white yeah. people, it's not as explicit as it was then. It's but like crossing all some white voters. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is true. That is true. The, the, what, I'm sort of well, what I'm trying to track there is, yeah. um, I mean, around the 80s, more married women went mm -hmm. into the workforce, yes. um, just as the sort of economic policies are changing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the, you know the the sort of rolling back of any kind of services, the slow slow process. But I think mm -hmm. still this idea of maintaining a middle class required, and now this is more normal, requires two incomes really from families. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is outside the you know idea of necessarily a family, just the sort of reality of that. So I'm trying to mm -hmm. kind of pick up that and center that a little bit more. That mm -hmm. what was happening during that period is not just sort of the rise of the right and conservatism and anti-abortion politics, which is how mm. we think about it, but on the other hand, women were going to work, not mm. even as like feminism, you know, um, right. but as sort of a reality of mm -hmm. how they're gonna hold on to the, the lifestyle as the, mm. as the uh, economy was changing. You know, in the, from the 70s to the 80s, there was a big shift, mm. right? Um, and the middle class life, uh, lifestyle was harder to hold on to. So, but, but the eugenics comment, I don't mean it to be a detour. Um, I'm so, but you know, I, I can see why you say that. It just, it's, it's yeah. to think about, it is sort of like osmosis or the sort of idea of a family being so central, you know, um, you know, sort of like why, why does it keep coming up, you know? Um, and, you know, not that it's necessarily bad, but it does come with a whole host of structural and inequalities that are related to it. And I, I so I, you know, I'm look, trying to pull out the ways in which a family was so important to eugenics, not as in, not just individual, feeble-minded people, but this idea of a lineage that would kind of, in a way, you're right, stealthily reemerge as you know, you know, making it hard for you know the idea of kind of looking to see if there's any anomalies genetically and trying to manage those kinds of things, that the idea of being an independent family now more than ever is important because all of it is falling on the families. There's no supports, you know. Um, and it also came to me thinking, like, during the pandemic, you know, all these women are trying to freeze their eggs as all this information is coming about how hard families are doing, right? I mean, like, the mothers are, you know, families are like, they can't handle it, and yet women are fantasizing about having a family eventually. You know, so that it feels like there's this big disconnect between wanting a family in a society that doesn't support that, mm. you know. So, yes. I have a question about, um, at the beginning of the talk you talked about, um, there was a big, like, increase in the usage of ART. And I'm wondering, is that, like, mostly technological, or is there, like, a strong social side? Um, a connection I made between um, that sharp increase and in kind of the, the, the beauty bar uh -huh. right. <laughs> situation um, is, you know, some famous families on TV that yes. we've all heard of. We won't name them. <laughs> um, we might get distracted. Like, that's the first time I heard about egg freezing was from that. And yeah. so I'm sort of curious if, if 
if that's included in the in the trajectory of, of more people being interested in, in engaging with ART? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the, that, that kind of targeting of the social media. I mean, the, the different thing is that that's not, you know, it's probably been pushed by some clinics, you know, or people, you know, paying them to do that kind of make this public statement about it. Um, but it, there's also the interest, you know, there they are talking about how hard it is, too, you know, but they still hold on to the, the promise of it, you know, that it's going to, you know, fix all this sort of problems, you know, about how to get over this issue of how do I have work or not or waiting to have children or finding a partner. But I do think that the marketing is um, definitely a way that it's moved into the, you know, public realm in such a way that young women... Are now see it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, I just wonder if there's any connection to sperm banks and creating the perfect child. Yes, I mean the uh, both the the eggs and the sperm banks. You know, if you go on their websites, they have you know cute baby pictures and you know what you know the education level and so sperm and egg donors. That you know, it's majority of you know white from white people that, that those uh -huh. eggs are, and sperm are being asked for. So yeah, there is a sort of co-constitutive, you know, uh, relationship there between that perfect family and which biological material you want to use to build the family. But they're not pitching it on college campuses for They're men. not pitching it on college campuses <laughs> because it, you don't get as much money. I yeah, mean, it really, sure. but yeah, exactly. There is, and, and you don't get the... Um, we don't deserve to get more <laughs> <laughs> It's not as hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, um, the, the, the sort of uh, angel, you know, they have this donation benefit, this, you know, it's not just that, you know, you know, you're going to make a bunch of money. Like you're helping another woman. You know, and that that language fits more in a gender ideology than it would for men. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you were going to ask? Um, yeah, I, I was um, on one of the ads that you showed. There was a little phrase at the bottom that said, uh, "Social security number required." Mm -hmm. Oh, uh huh. Mm -hmm. so, yes, in the Morgan Stanley. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. No, no. It was actually. I think it was one of the newspaper clippings that you had. Oh, was it in um, the? And so it had the thinking, yeah, the one on the left. <gasps> oh my God! I didn't and so that brought up the question oh, of citizenship. Yes. And, huh? and then wow. Lynn was saying about immigration. Wow. And so connecting that, like my question, and it's still kind of evolving in my head, so bear with me. But I'm thinking about this in relation to what you said about Roosevelt at the turn of the century with the idea of uh, race suicide right. and that whole conceptualization of the American race, mm -hmm. right? And so the the way in which he was framing a very specific racialized melting pot of American citizenship right and so I'm wondering like how does this have you thought about like maybe thinking about the, the role that citizenship is playing in a kind of contemporary articulation of this idea of American race because I agree with you right like in the late 19th century you're looking at it more as like a very explicit racialization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with this discourse of race suicide and so now because of the rhetoric of brown race, right, and, and the idea that we're colorblind so we don't see it, right. it may not be as, um, you know, it's not as explicit as it was at the turn of the century, even though it, it's still very present. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's a, a something there with, with that concept of, of how is citizenship racialized through this process yeah. of, um, you know, 
the superhero. Yes, exactly. And the idea of the, if I'm not mistaken, the idea of, of one of the ideas of eugenics of like the mother of the future. Yes, right? yes. And yes. so, how does that like superhero mother of the yeah. future, race suicide will save you? Yes. Right. Yeah. So those are just some of the thoughts that. Yeah. No. The yeah. The citizenship. I, so I haven't. I didn't even catch the social security. I mean, it's, I feel like this is like a so many things that just keep <laughs> coming out. Um, so I, that's an excellent point, and I'm definitely going to look into it. I mean, the piece that I was picking up on this or before, but I definitely want to do the citizenship, is um, sort of a newer version of good and bad motherhood, which could tap into this. You know, So the good mothers are the ones that are resourced and can wait to have children. And it's the bad mothers are undeserving mothers that are having children too young and, you know, they can't... Hmm? Irresponsible. Irrespon irresponsible, right? Which I think could fall into a eugenic framework as well, right? Um, and, but, and definitely immigration or who, who are the undeserving mothers, you know, um, are, you know, could fall under, you know, immigration and women of color thing. Um, Natalie Lero has a... Um, laboratory deficiencies um, and she uh -huh. speaks uh -huh. about um, a little bit about what you're talking okay. about but specifically as it pertains to uh, Mexican-American women okay. um, 1930s through 1950s okay mm -hmm. great did you yeah yeah I was just curious but you mentioned early on that the entire practice is a lot more regulated in Europe you didn't mention Asia but I'm thinking mm -hmm. looking for possible models or maybe it's um, yes. just restrictions. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, is is this actually happening much in other countries? Are the restrictions of the sort that say, we shouldn't be doing this, or are they the sort that say, you know, let's make this more fair and equal, but it's hard to come up with, that's a lot of money, yes. if you're going to make this widely available via a nationalized medical system, right? Yes. So I'm just, I'm wondering how, how is this being handled in places where medical care isn't quite the commodity that it is here? Mm -hmm. So, well, a lot of the um, Asia and um, South Asia of, uh, you know, mostly through surrogacy mm -hmm. is how that's right. presenting itself, you know. Okay. Um, and so there's, so there, and there's, some of that is coming up here with surrogacy as well um, in terms of how do you protect women, you know, uh, from being exploited in that process. Um, so women freezing their own eggs in this way is not the same because the industry has been, has been regulated, especially in Europe. You know, there, there's lots more about what is appropriate and inappropriate. And, you know, um, the moral questions are more centered than they are here in terms of, you know, how women are treated. I mean, it's interesting here, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine had originally uh, capped they, they have no real regulatory power, but they did. They said you can only pay a woman to freeze her eggs, to, do, you know, to donate later, $5,000. That was supposed to be the cap um, mm -hmm. because they didn't, the argument was they didn't want to compel poor women to um, freeze their eggs. But um, an, actually an Asian-American woman took them to court for mm -hmm. that and said, I can get more money than that, mm -hmm. and you can't prevent me from that, and she used uh, antitrust law for that, and she won. So that's why we now see $50,000, um, because there's no limit now. Um, so it doesn't quite, but so it's, it, it's different because it's not as free in the, in the market right. in other countries. 
And I don't know if I would suggest, you know, we should regulate it that way. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know what I mean? Because the word we don't appropriate gives me the willies. The what? <laughs> the word appropriate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, I mean, exactly, like, exactly. I don't want the so, government telling me what's appropriate. <laughs> right, right. And certainly not other kinds of, it, it might limit who can have access to it right, if you do that, right. right? So that's why it's hard to know what the answer could be, you know. But it isn't the case that since that, uh, uh, that legal case that now there's no limit on the amount that you can be paid. That hasn't incentivized more people of color to do this. No, right, right. And more I, working people to do well, it. Right. Yeah. Targeted. Yeah, they're just not being targeted, mm-hmm. exactly, because they're in these specific places you're getting access to it. Um, so I was also thinking about when you were trying to tie, you know, this with eugenics and you said like the feeble, feeble-minded woman was like the barmaid. Yeah. And I was wondering if, to what degree of this like uh, job serve as like a proxy for race and in which, and because we're seeing this particular like industries, it's becoming mm-hmm. more popular, which are very white dominated industries. So yeah. I'm wondering if there's a connection there between, and I don't, I'm not like a scholar of the eugenics period or the, you know, early, earlier period, but it seems like if that can be kind of like a, you know, dog whistle, like mm-hmm. at levels of education or your job, it can mm-hmm. be like proxies. Yeah. Um, and then thinking about like what industries is this popular in, right? Like, yeah. you know, we have all this discourse and during the pandemic about essential workers, but you know, I don't think they're doing this for nurses, right? Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. Which is it would be a great idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, because poverty, you know, or pauperism, mm-hmm. you know, would definitely be, uh, would put you probably into the feeble-minded category, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. that's true. And then so in terms of like, which it's almost, the, it still shows that it's the people in these other kinds of more mm-hmm. lucrative industries so. that are not caring these industries, yes, right? Exactly. Like that's the that's the distinction between like a nurse and a tech worker. Right, like one right. is like performing care work for pay. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Do you know what I mean? And it almost be more appropriate, or, yeah. you know, to yeah. allow yeah. nurses yeah. to, uh, you know, if they're working so you know, yeah. like that, you know, to provide support in that way so yeah. you know but you it would be interesting to check just to, to sort of map more clearly which like industries yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah let's take a minute and thank Priscilla uh-uh. for this really-